Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. My name is Kayla Fratt, and I'm the owner of Journey Dog Training. Today, I'm joined by Emily Martin of Positively Pets in Denver, Colorado. Emily has a long history of training exotic animals in zoos, and we're going to be talking about how she transitioned from exotic animals to dog training. So Emily, why don't we start out with you just kind of giving our listeners a bit of an introduction to you and your history. I know you've been all over the place and done a lot of exciting things. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks for having me here on the podcast. Um, I have pretty uh, unique background for a dog trainer. Um, but like most of us, my passion for animals started at a young age. And I was that little kid who was obsessed with wildlife and animals and had like pictures of bobcats all over my room and things like that. Um, however, my parents were not animal people. So I wasn't the kid that had, you know, 10 different pets. Um, I was finally allowed to get a bunny rabbit when I was like seven or eight. And I, you know, trained that bunny rabbit, treated her like my kid. She was everything to me. Uh, poor bunny, right? She was pretty cool. Uh, Grease lightning. Um, and then uh, later on in high school, I started really realizing that I wanted to get into the animal field and um, finally was allowed a dog and started when I got that dog, started working with a local dog trainer. And so he kind of guided me through what dog training looks like at a young age. And I started working with horses as well during that time. And then I found out about this amazing college in California. It's called Moorpark College, and it's actually a junior college. And on the college, they have a specialty animal training program called uh, America's Teaching Zoo. And basically, you end up getting a degree in exotic animal training and management. So I was lucky enough to get in there. It's a very uh, tough po program to get into, only about 50 students a year. And it is a two-year program, and it was seven days a week. Like, you basically live there on the zoo, taking care of all the animals. All your college classes are all animal-based. It was amazing. It was such a cool experience. Um, on the weekend, we were doing shows for the public and kind of, you know, fundraising and things like that. After, yeah, it was cool. It was amazing. It was, you know, dream come true. Um, and I got in right out, out of high school. So I started young in my career for sure. And then after that, um, I moved to some facilities in San Diego where they're real small outreach facilities focusing in rescued exotics. And we were doing education uh, shows and programs and traveling with animals. And we'd do like birthday parties and things like that. So I worked at a couple different facilities, um, one in San Diego and one in the Central Coast, California area. And it was really, really awesome. It was really hard work. You're pulling like 60 hour work weeks. Uh, There's probably like four of us taking care of like 200 animals. But I learned more than anything, any other career or any other job in my career. I learned a lot during that time. Um, I got to raise a ton of animals, everything from kangaroos, camels, lemurs, uh, lynx, snakes, you name it, I've, I've worked with it. Um, let's see. Yeah. Jumping from there, um, I have taken a few breaks in my career. So I've been working with exotics for about 17 years. And whenever I end up taking breaks, it's always to do something I love, but I always end up working with dogs. So one of my breaks was moving to Mammoth, Eastern Sierras to snowboard, which I'm super passionate about as well. And while I was up there, I saw them mushing dogs. And I was like, you know what? I can do that. So I was <laughs> right. Why not? Sure. Uh, How hard can it be? Oh, 
amazing hard <laughs> hard work best shape of my life um so i was the only female musher for a couple of years up there with the with the crew with the boys um out running dogs which was an amazing experience and kind of learning a different side of the dog business and that's where my uh, girl came from, Miara. She's 11 years old now. Um, so she was a former sled dog for a little bit and now has had, had the good life and she's the trainer's dog. Let's see, we'll wrap this up. After that, I have worked at um, two of the really big zoos. I was at San Diego Zoo for many years in the education department and as a primate keeper. And then also I moved to Denver in 20. 15 now and I worked at Denver Zoo until this past year and at Denver Zoo I was an education keeper so doing shows and outreach and training staff on how to handle the animals for shows and programs. Um, it's been an amazing career. Um, my dog training business right that's a lot about zoo stuff and about exotic animals that I've done. On the flip side, um, dogs kind of came in play in 2010 when I was on a break from the zoo world and I decided I wanted to start my own dog training business. I was working for a dog trainer doing classes and privates and unfortunately that place closed and I was like, you know what, I can do it on my own. So I started Positively Pets then, um, ran it for a few years full time and then I've ran it part time while I was working at San Diego Zoo and Denver Zoo. So it was actually a part-time biz for a long time, which was great. Um, zookeepers, kind of the honest truth about zookeepers is you don't make a lot of money, <laughs> but you do it because you absolutely love it. Um, so the dog training was a great supplement and um, to keep my skills sharp on everything. And then last year, so almost exactly a year ago, March 1st, uh, 2019, I decided to leave the zoo field for good and make my uh, dog training full time. And it's been an amazing year. My clients out here are incredible and they were wanting more of me and I didn't couldn't give them more. So Positively Pets, and I say I'm a professional animal trainer. Um, I do a lot of dog training, but I'm also available for training of other animals, whether it be birds, reptiles, uh, your pet pig, goats, sheep. <laughs> I would love to help everybody with all those unique pets that they have as well. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, so one of the questions that I'm sure you get asked all the time is, um, you know, I mean, I know I get asked this, like, you know, hey, do you think you could train a cat to do this? Um, and, you know, my answer is always like, absolutely. I've trained hundreds of cats. Um, and, you know, people are always shocked by that. But what is the when people ask you what the hardest animal or most challenging animal you've ever trained is, what would you say? Well, first, I have to laugh at you say cats because I get asked, do you train cats? And I always tell people, not unless they're over 50 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Give me a bobcat, a serval, a tiger, something else, not a house cat. Um, but yeah, I get that question all the time because my clients find out about my background and they're like, oh, woo, tell us, tell us. And honestly, the answer is dogs. And I think really? that's some yeah, and I think that's why I'm so drawn to the dog training is it's such a challenge. And, you know, it's a challenge because with zoo animals, like we know a little bit more what to expect than with dogs. If you look at like the natural history of dogs and a lot of dogs we work with are shelter dogs, you know, rescue dogs. We don't know their backgrounds and their behaviors are not predictable a lot of the times. 
you know, we have to learn a lot more about them where I know if I'm working with a spider monkey, I know what the natural behavior of a spider monkey is and what this monkey is going to do more or less, you know, more or less. Where dogs mm-hmm. with these backgrounds, you know, whether they've been unfortunately abused or neglected or have, not, you know, improper socialization, there's so many pieces to the puzzle. And then on top of that, dogs are living with us, right? So, yeah. you know, we're changing their behavior on a daily basis just by what we might be reinforcing or not reinforcing. Where, you know, at the zoo animals, there is that different lifestyle of like, we go home at the end of the day and they go to sleep and do their thing and then we show up and there's just that different, those different barriers. Yeah. That makes sense, actually. I'm I'm currently fostering a, a very fearful, under-socialized dog. Um, and this is my first time working with a dog this severely under-socialized um, outside of the shelter environment. Um, and there are all these little things like I, I need to vacuum right now. And it's just like, oh, God, that's going to set her back so much versus, yes, at the shelter, you know, traumatic stuff happened. But the training staff were never the ones who did it. Um, mm-hmm. And you just have so much more control over that environment versus, yeah, now I've got this foster dog in my home where it's just, you know, I have to walk too close to her crate every time I go into the closet. And I've got treats set up so I can drop treats. But, you know, it's just like it's, it's so much harder to keep them under threshold when you're not in this tightly controlled environment. And I would imagine the zoo was even more so than a shelter. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's hard to explain that to people, you know, that like the zoo is just a different world. And, you you know, it's challenging in its own ways for sure. But, yeah, you of have course. that sense of control and a little bit more of natural history of behaviors of the animals are going to be more in sync with what they should be of that species versus dogs are kind of all over the page these days. I would say so. I think that's fair to say. (laughs) Yeah, it's really bizarre. I mean, it's so much like whiplash going back and forth between like this foster dog that I can't touch. And then, you know, an animal of the same species that I work with and my detection dog that is just like all over, you know, a total like ball, crazy, high energy maniac. Um, And they're the same species. Right. Yeah. Um, And could even be the same breed mixes. Um, so what about zoo animals? Um, you know, I'm going to force you to talk to me about exotics here. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most challenging zoo animal or non, non-dog non animal that you've trained? Yeah, um, I've had some interesting challenges tossed my way by my bosses of like, hey, we need the, this animal to do this. Um, one of my very, very first animals I ever had to train a behavior on was a beaver named Hudson. Mm-hmm. And I had to train him um, so we could check his teeth. So that one was fun and unique. And here I am, this, you know, naive 20-year-old trainer trying to figure out how to train a beaver to hold his mouth open. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one that I love to talk about is a bald eagle that I work with named Justice. And why he's kind of always comes to fruition on conversations of this is he not only was a challenge, but he probably taught me more than any animal in my career has so far. And um, oh, I'm going to get choked up talking about him. That's bad. <laughs> um, he was amazing. So he um, was unfortunately shot by a fisherman, which is a pretty common problem in Alaska. They see them as competition for the fish. And Justice had um, quite a few issues, but his main one was he was completely blind. So no vision at all. Wow. wow. And uh-huh. he was a juvenile. So we think he was about six months to a year, but we're not for sure, but not mm-hmm. fully, you know, whiteheaded and everything. And he came to our facility and my boss just said, OK, he's yours. Figure it out. He needs to be a program animal. He needs to be ready to go on the road. And I, you know, it was just like, all right, 
cool. So we were talking about like natural instincts of animals, right? Well, this guy, those instincts are changed because he can't see. And, you know, um, it was just from the start of like, let's change up his mew setting. So instead of having perches that Mm -hmm. he could sit on up high, they were perches that were three inches off the ground. So if he fell off, he wouldn't get hurt. Right. Um, And teaching him how to get around and then also teaching him to eat. If you tossed fish on the ground, um, many of you guys probably don't know, actually, bald eagles can't smell. There's only two birds in the world with a sense of smell. And eagles are not one of those two. Um, So if you toss fish on the ground, he can't smell it. Mm -hmm. So we had to teach him how to eat that way as well. Like I put a tap it by your beak and that means food's coming. So different things like that. Um, and then also what we call glove train. So train him to sit on our glove, to go in and out of a crate um, and different things like that. And he learned quicker than I ever thought possible. It was incredible. And I actually traveled the U.S. with him doing media and shows. And he was a rock solid bird and just incredible. Like I said, taught me so much. Wow. Yeah, that's very cool. Um what are the two uh, birds that have a sense of smell? It is uh, vultures and the kiwi. Really? So if you think about I like... I want to ask Evolution a question about why that one. <laughs> the vul- vultures really? is so they can smell that stinky Yeah, the vultures make food. sense. Uh, the kiwi, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What do, what do kiwis eat? I don't, this is, we don't have to go down this tangent, but I'm very curious about <laughs> why. Okay. I've never worked with kiwi, kiwi, so I don't know. I think... Yeah, they're such a weird little bird. Like, yeah, that that, that makes. I'm not surprised that they're such an out there species, but huh. Tur- and turkey vultures I could talk about forever. They're amazing and weird and cool and disgusting and gross. But <laughs> we don't need to go down that road <laughs> I, either. Yeah, I keep I keep begging my bosses at the detection uh, dog organization to let me get a vulture and train a working vulture for con- conservation. Oh, that's awesome. Um, that I'm working cool. on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it would be great for, you know, really large-scale surveys. Um, we'll just have to work on that later. You let me know. I'll we can phone tag, you. Tag I'll, team I'll, that I'll project. phone you into that. <laughs> I don't actually know how to train a vulture. I, like, I understand the, the, the basics. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the lessons that you learned in the zoo that have really helped bring, um, helped bring up your skill set as a dog trainer and some of the things that, um, yeah, you've really learned in the zoo to make you a better dog trainer. Yeah, um, definitely skills along the way. And I feel like even though um, I'm so far in the career, I'm still always picking up skills. And I think that's key to making a strong trainer. Um, You know, obviously learning and understanding, um, understanding all the training principles that started back in college and just learning how to apply them and also learning from our mistakes is really important because we're we all make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of taking that and taking those as examples to how to better my skills and also um, learning from others, learning from people that have been in the field longer or maybe worked at different facilities. Um, That's actually some advice I always give to up and coming zookeepers is I encourage people to work more more than one facility, because if you just stay Mm -hmm. at that one facility, you just gain those skills. And often it's missed. You miss out if you work at a couple different facilities and see how everybody else is doing things, too. 
Um, and that goes with discipline. Being a zookeeper, there are a lot of rules, and rules are very important. Uh, a lot of rules for safety purposes. And the more and more I work with aggressive dogs and things like that, too, I really um, am able to share those discipline and kind of how I learned discipline with my clients as well. So that's kind of helped turn over to working with um, challenging dog training cases and teaching the owners. Uh, mm-hmm. Protocol, same thing, protocols. I am kind of like you where I like things out on paper and organized and this is how it should be done. Step one, two, three, four. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pro- protocols are are my thing. Um, and then last, and of course, super important, and I always share this with all my clients, is patience and consistency. Patience, I cannot say enough about patience. Um, even with our dogs, patience goes such a long way. And same with exotics. You have to be patient with our animals. We have to train at the speed that they're ready for and they can handle. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really important. And then consistency. And consistency, I think, is hard in dog training with families, right? You know, he's doing this, she's doing that. Um, And we would see that at the zoo, too, of like, hey, this trader is giving this cue slightly too low versus you're doing it up high and things like that. So oftentimes on animals, we would put a point trainer and then we would get kind of that behavior trained up. And then we'd bring in the other trainers and train them as well. What we have been doing, uh, because sometimes having, you know, too many hands in the pot, consistency would start to get a little bit messy but it's super important for success. That makes sense. And then what so, else? Let's see. Zoo. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, so you're actually um, essentially generalizing, you know, not just generalizing to a different location or to different, uh, you know, different rooms or distractions, but you're actually generalizing once the behavior is solid to do people, which makes sense. Yeah, we would always have a checklist on behaviors and you'd have your primary and it would be, you know, your primary trainer. And then is it complete? Is it complete in these different stages? And then you would have it be an open behavior, which meant like all trainers are now able to ask that cue from that animal. Cool. That behavior, uh-huh. Things like that. Um, and then the other thing that I really, really enjoy bringing to the dog community is my variety of training skills. You know, I've like said I've worked with over 100 different species. At one point, I had a list going of all the different species I worked. It's hard to remember. Um, but, you know, taking skills from all those different training uh species and behaviors and applying those to dogs. And one thing which we can dig into a little bit later too, but I really do a lot of husbandry training and teaching owners how to handle their dogs and how to be able to do nail trims and things like that too. And so a lot of that I've learned from the zoo and Mm -hmm. uh, with that patience and all of that of how to be able to take care, best care of our animals. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that I just keep re-noticing that um, a lot of zoo animals um, and zoo trainers just, uh, I think, focus a lot more on husbandry and cooperative care than um, dog trainers did maybe three or four years ago. It does seem like more and more cooperative care and husbandry is kind of coming into the fold for dog training. Um, Or maybe that's just the people I'm around. Um, (laughs) So, you know, how... How is training, I don't know, a wallaby or a beaver, um, how to do a nail trim the same or different from training a dog to do a nail trim? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And that kind of goes back and like, what's the hardest animal to train? Because I think people are like, oh, you trained a wallaby and nail trim? Like, that's amazing. And I was like, we can do it with our dog, too. We actually use mm-hmm. the exact same 
skills and the same policies. And it's called positive reinforcement, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so that's something is just going over with them and, and breaking it down of like, let's use some positive re- reinforcement. And, you know, depending on your dog's reaction to either a Dremel or the nail clippers depends on where we start. Um, but it's the same same training principles. Um, I would say what is different with a wallaby or I don't know, some other animals, you might not be able to be hands-on with that animal. And so you have to get a little bit more creative or with our dogs, it's like, come sit by me, Fido, you know, and work with them that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But but taking it slow and taking it step by step is the basic kind of way I would go about, you know, training a nail trim is working on the dog sitting by you and being calm and starting to touch their paws. And that's what we actually trained a um, prairie dog, a nail trim uh, at Denver that we were working on. And it was the same thing. We trained her for cessation behavior. So she had to come up to a little part on her cage and hold that position with her nose. She was so cute. And then once she was standing up, her nails would be out of the enclosure, right? Mm-hmm. It was kind of a mesh enclosure. So then we worked on, you know, touching her nails and duration. And that's what we would start with dog, right? Touching his nails, holding his nails, duration, putting pressure to his nails, and then bringing in whatever uh, devices, a Dremel or clippers that you're going to use, start to desense them to that, start making some noise if it's the Dremel, things like that. So it's mm-hmm. really, really the same steps and the same concept And then, of course, as they're doing well, you're reinforcing and giving that feedback throughout the whole process of, yes, you're doing great. Good job. Good job. Good job. Keep it up. Yeah. Yeah, that's really awesome. Um, I'm actually in the process of um, training Barley to do cooperative nail trims, and um, it's been surprisingly difficult. Um, I can train this dog to do so many tricks. But nail trims. Nail trims. Yeah, I mean, we're we're really making progress. But I mean, it goes back to what you were saying about patience is it's just um, it's just been a lot longer of a road than I would have hoped or expected. And luckily, he's not a dog that needs frequent nail trims. He's active enough um, that, you know, I've actually never needed to trim his nails. Oh, nice. Um, That's impressive. In the years that I've, but like, I, I expect that at some point he'll get less active and I'm going to need to do it. And we're at the stage right now where he can lie on his side and I can pick up his paws and separate the toes. Um, but as soon as I start kind of fingering the nails and we've been at that stage for like, it feels like years, but it's probably been a month. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, it is, it's hard for us to take it slow. And we, you see, you know, yeah. we both see that with a lot of behaviors and like leash reactivity and things like that. Owners always want results now, but for those challenging behaviors, which I consider most husbandry behaviors, a challenging behavior, it's going to take okay. that time. And if there's no urgency, especially for Barley, you know, take that time and make it a positive experience. And he learns every time you're, you know, messing between his toes, good cookies come along and nothing's happened. Um, I also, I was going to say, it's also interesting. Like I've noticed, it seems like his nail trim behavior is much worse than his blood draw behavior. And I think he's just had more bad experiences before I got him with nail trims. Um, I would imagine his owners, cause he was about three when I got him trimmed his nails. Um, at least occasionally. And I don't know how often he was getting vaccines, but I can, um, you know, he, he's totally fine doing voluntary, voluntary vaccinations and has That's all awesome. sorts of nail trim issues. And it's just, yeah, it doesn't always make sense to us, but you know, we don't know the animal's history. 
Yeah. And then another thing is too, like thinking outside the box, a couple cool tricks I've learned along the way. Can't remember what trainer, I wish I could give her credit, but I watched a video on this trainer doing it. And, you know, a lot of dogs, it's one because they've been quicked, right? Their nails have gotten Mm -hmm. to the quick and it bleeds. Some of it's the sound. And she actually was working on um, like a spaghetti noodle and cutting a spaghetti noodle by the dogs with the nail clippers because it sounds like you're cutting the nail. I'm like, that's genius. So if it's a sound fear... You could yeah. add that into training. And then I don't know if you're doing it too. Um, like I said, husbandry training is kind of circling back in the dog training world, which is awesome. And we also use this in the zoo world. I'm trying to think. We taught, we were, oh, our fennec foxes, we were working with this because they are hands off with us um, due to choice. They're just not comfortable with us handling them. And um, we can go in with them and do all that, but they do not like being held, touched, pet, anything. So we were teaching them to use a scratch pad. Yep. And so it was like a rough sandpaper and getting them and they like to dig. And so that was, a, you know, a bonus and getting them to like scratch on that to rub down their nails. Yeah. Yeah. I've been looking at things like that or a Dremel um, as well, just for, for various options. There's there's so many options out there. I've been doing a lot of kind of Shirag Patel's bucket game more or less with it, um, nice. where, you know, he's lying on his side and if he picks up his head then I stop. So he, uh, he's hopefully not getting to the point at all where he's pulling his paws away from me. Um, and that's all been really helpful. So let's take a, let's take a quick ad break and we'll come back and talk about husbandry in a minute. Um, so we're going to hear a word from our sponsors and then we'll be right back to talk more about husbandry and exotic animals. Hey guys, it's Kayla here from Journey Dog Training, dropping into the episode to tell you a bit more about what I offer here at Journey Dog Training. Aside from free resources like this podcast, my blog, and my YouTube channel, I offer low-cost behavior help in the form of ebooks and webinars to listeners like you. On journeydogtraining.com right now, you can find a webinar on how to prepare your dog for when you're expecting a new baby, and how to help your dog survive thunderstorms and fireworks. Both webinars are only $10. If you're more of a verbal learner, we've got three ebooks available, one on separation anxiety, another on aggression, and a third on overexcited greeters. All of those ebooks are under $20. If you use the code CONVERSATION at checkout on journeydogtraining.com, you'll get 20% off of your order. And we're back. So let's talk a little bit more about some other husbandry behaviors. What other than nail trims or, you know, grooming and brushing, what are some of the things that you think of when you are working with clients to help um, train their animals to do voluntary husbandry? Um, I would say, you know, obviously nail trims, which we talked about, grooming and brushing are also really important, especially with a lot of the doodles that are out there these days. Yeah. Um, face brushing, um, paw brushing, leg brushing, all of that is really important. Uh, Another one that I really like to work on is restraints. A lot of dogs are nervous just going into the vet office and then they go into the vet office and there's, you know, these people touching them and holding them and doing weird things. So I really encourage, especially in like my puppy classes, I work on teaching um, proper restraint and how to let your dog be comfortable Mm -hmm. during those hugs. I call them the hugs, right? When we're squeezing our dog, even though we're restraining them. Um, Also working on blood draws. I think you mentioned with barley, blood draws and vaccines. That's great. The more we can do with our dogs, the more vets and vet techs are going to love you guys. And Mm -hmm. it makes their job a lot easier my girl, whenever she gets goes to the vet, you know, they take her in their, their back and they're like, she is so lovely. She'll let us do anything to her. 
but I've worked really hard on that. I've worked with her, you know, since she was a pup on all kinds of different things. Um, another simple one, which I think often gets missed, is uh, teeth brushing. Brushing mm. our dog's mm-hmm. teeth, right, can help save a lot of money in vet bills. And I like to teach a place behavior. So dogs will kind of put their head right in their lap and hold that position. And then you can start to mess with their gums and their teeth. And then eventually we move up to tooth brushing, teeth brushing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so certain things like that that are pretty simple that most owners should be able to do and help out their vets during those visits. And vets are always great if you go into the clinic and say, you know, I have a dog that's nervous with people. Do you mind if I do the restraint today? I don't think I've ever heard a vet say, no, we have to do that. So really encouraging and empowering owners. Really? Yeah. Find a new vet. It was, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, but just once, and we've been to a lot of vets. um, And it was a clinic we'd never been to before. And it was oh. a, a jugular blood, blood draw in San Diego to get barley across the border. Ah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's, it was a bit of a bummer. That is a bummer. But yeah, I, I said, fine, you know, talk to your vets. Um, mm-hmm. I also train at a vet clinic, too, which has been really great. And I work oh, with another cool. trainer there, and she's always giving me all of the husbandry cases. She's like, this is what you do. You're so good at it. So I think she's really glad that I joined her there because now I get all the really the dogs that, you know, hate going to the vet mm-hmm. um, yeah. but it's been great and it's helped um my dog is a good example of she's a senior now and she has to get shots every three three weeks for her arthritis and I definitely could take her to the vet and have them do them but I would rather do them myself so we when was we started about a year ago six months ago some I don't know time flies and <laughs> I decided to train her station behavior so I could give her her shots and her be comfortable with it so all of that work we've done in the past led up to even now in her senior days of her understanding, okay, this is good. Mom's not going to hurt me. Good things are going to happen. And she gets so excited to get her shots now because she gets such a big <laughs> reward after that. I'm sure oh, she would love to have shots awesome. more often. <laughs> that's really fabulous. Um, yeah, I love, yeah, I, that's so great to hear. Um, so let's, uh, let's, switch gears a little bit away from husbandry unless you've got anything else to add there um and talk about some of the hurdles or difficulties that you've run into when training exotics and then you know we can switch into dogs after that yeah um some of the hurdles training exotics a lot of it is sometimes we go have to deal with their natural instincts or their natural sleep schedules and work that's working against us um a good example is cocoa porcupine that I was working with I was doing a voluntary tooth trim happened to be husbandry um mm-hmm. she's an older girl and her teeth grow and grow and grow as rodents do they have ever-growing teeth kind of a unique fact about them and so we are trying to do voluntary tooth trims instead of putting it under anesthesia and our training sessions normally training sessions with zoo animals are short and sweet I'm talking like five to ten minutes max cocoa mm-hmm. it was like a 40 minute session and 30 minutes of those was getting her to try to wake up (laughs) (laughs) because they're nocturnal naturally. And so she's like, why are you waking me up in the middle of the day? I'm tired and I'm sleepy. Do I really have to come over there? 
So that was a fun one because one, it was waking her up and then trying to find motivation and uh, reinforcement that was valuable enough to wake her up as well and things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, So kind of, again, back to what I've mentioned, is like thinking outside the box. What we want might not always work. So we might have to get really creative and try different things. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, yeah, that's funny. I don't think I've ever had to work with an animal that wouldn't wake up to come in or out. <laughs> oh, sometimes. I, and sometimes I just leave. I'd be like, all right, we'll try this in like two more hours, you know, if I didn't have yeah. the patience or I didn't have that time at that point. I'd be like, all right, we'll try it later. Um, you know, I wish I would have could have been able to come in because she was crazy active at night, but it wasn't an option for me to come in at like 11 o'clock to train the porcupine, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, another hurdle too, and we get this a lot, I actually get this with clients that have pet parrots is the parrots screaming. Um, I also compare this to dogs barking. So -hmm. at the zoo, um, a lot of times our parrots are in public areas on display for people to see, to interact with and admire their beauty. And these parrots, you know, squawk, squawk and scream, scream, scream. And what does the crowd do? (laughs) <laughs> right they love it and they right. like they scream back at the parrots and then they egg them on and so if we're looking oh at be- yeah right if you're looking at behavior those parrots every time they scream they're getting reinforced and they love it so then when you take that parrot to a school to do a school program and you're trying to you know teach the kids about the rainforest and the importance of that what do you have you have this parrot on your hand parrot. yeah who's screaming So those are some other fun challenges of like trying to fight like the natural way they're out and about and, and, you know, being exhibited and hanging out with the crowd at the zoo versus their awesome need for programs and need to be able to be quiet in their crate and be quiet during a program and things like that. So there's some fun challenges for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I always felt very lucky when I was a parrot owner that I did not have a habitual screamer. Um, (laughs) yeah it was They're just loud. one of those things where was like, oh my oh my goodness yeah and he he was just a little monk parakeet so he, nowhere near as bad as it could be but still um, yeah those macaws have a voice I would love to have a parrot one day but not until I have property and a big area for them to explore and you know do do it right yeah yeah same I would love to have birds again but um I travel too much for work right now and yeah I I don't think I want to do the parrot in an apartment thing again no (laughs) so um let's talk a little bit uh, you know again we're going to switch gears um as we're kind of winding down about you know why zoos are beneficial I think you know I think it's something that's important to talk about and worthwhile talking about um on a dog podcast of just, you know, I know a lot of us have mixed feelings about zoos or maybe misunderstand zoos. So why don't we talk a little bit about, you know, why you love zoo work and why you do, you clearly think it's valuable and clearly think it's a worthwhile. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's a great topic. And, you know, there's some heat a lot of times behind that topic. And um, a lot of times when I get those questions of like, oh, I don't really like zoos, especially when I was at San Diego and in the education department, I'd be like, well, would you mind joining me for a tour around the zoo? Can I take you around the zoo, introduce you to some animals, share a little bit about what we do? And 99% of the time, those people, if they took me up on it, were blown away. Um, mm-hmm. I think zoos, people don't realize all that zoos do behind the scenes. 
you know, we see these animals Definitely. and we see them in enclosures and we think that's it. But there's so much more going on. Those zoo animals, often in my career, eat way better than I have. They get <laughs> the best food, the best health care. Um, you know, they get good exercise. They get all kinds of different things that people don't th- see or think about. And I often was like, can I just can I just put myself in there and live here, too, and have food delivered to have me every day? Please? <laughs> yeah, right. I don't have to do any of the prep or the work to make my meal. Pretty great. Um, so zoos are nice in that way. And zookeepers, you know, you got to realize like they live for the animals. That's why they're there. They're there Absolutely. to take the best care for those critters and those animals. And then some of the state of the art training that's happening there is mind blowing. Um, you know, I didn't talk a whole lot about like some of the husbandry stuff, but like we do voluntary blood draws. Now they're doing voluntary, um, not blood draws, but with the giraffes, uh, plate platelets. And uh, yeah, platelet drafts. And they've been saving animals throughout other zoos that have been sick and need these platelets. And they're like, oh, you know, Denver Zoo is like, hold on, we'll get those from our draft and send them your way. It's incredible. And so not only are we helping species, you know, within the zoos and reproduce, um, we're also helping those numbers of endangered animals stay with us. Uh, Denver Zoo recently, if you're in Denver, I suggest going to the zoo this summer when it opens again. They just had a baby rhino and rhino numbers are so, so minimal right now, unfortunately. And without zoos, they would be diminished a lot quicker. Same with gorillas, so many different species. Without the breeding and the conservation efforts that zoos are putting into their breeding programs, we wouldn't have those animals. And I know for myself, it is really important for my nieces to grow up and be able to know what a gorilla is. Like, I can't imagine growing up and like being like a gorilla, what's that, you know? Yeah. Um, and then not, um, you know, obviously the conservation, the breeding that's happening in the zoos, but also the conservation that's happening around the world. Uh, both the zoos that I've worked for are incredible with conservation around the world. They have staff around the world making changes, helping uh, educate communities in that too. So again, a lot of that doesn't get seen or heard as much as we would like to, or maybe people aren't listening to as much. Yeah, I know actually here with Working Dogs for Conservation, we work with quite a few zoos, both um, a lot of them actually donate to us, which is really great. We do educational events with them. And then we also so, you know, for example, if we're training the dogs to detect Sierra Nevada Red Fox or Kit Fox or, um, you know, Cross River Gorilla or something, a lot of times we'll get some of our initial samples from zoos. um, And it's not perfect for us for our detection purposes because they are eating slightly different diets they may be on birth control you know there's hormonal differences that uh, you know the dogs have to deal with but that's actually how my detection dog organiz- working dogs for conservation gets a lot of our initial training samples oh um, that's cool that totally makes sense yeah yeah i mean uh, yeah it's one of those things i didn't think about until i got this job where it's like oh yeah where do you get gorilla scat before you go to Cameroon? Because you don't want to go to Cameroon to do all the training there. No. You know, you want to know the dog's got it under control before you get on the plane. Um, That's awesome. So, yeah, we do quite a bit of work with zoos. Um, There's something unique yeah. about gorilla scent as well. I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, I've, can't say i mean i've been in the primate building at zoos but i'm not sure if i could pinpoint which one was the gorilla scent (laughs) smells like really bad body odor (laughs) with a hint of maple syrup (laughs) 
okay. All right. I'm going to encourage people right now with things, you know, a lot of things have been shut down or with minimal staff. Zookeepers are still working their butts off out there and caring for those animals. So supporting your local zoo means a lot to your zoos and um, they can use every little bit. Those animals got to keep eating and they got to want to keep those conservations going around the world too. So please support your local zoos. Absolutely. Yeah, please do. And if you live in Montana, like I do, um, support a non-local <laughs> zoo. Because we, I but there's a, there's a sign saying that we're getting a zoo in Billings, I think. Um, it, there's just a big billboard that says sloth coming eventually um, for a new zoo that's going to be opening. But I don't know if we have any like decent zoos in Montana. We might have a couple of roadside petting zoos. Yeah, um, not, not that I know. I don't know too many facilities out there. <laughs> No, I mean, yeah, I think I would probably just drive to Seattle if I was really itching for for some exotics. <laughs> um, so why don't we close out with some fun stories? I know you've got all sorts of um, crazy, interesting stories from, you know, you've been on Letterman, you've um, gotten locked out of your hotel room from some lemurs. <laughs> uh, There's something about dating with kangaroos. Why don't you tell us a couple, a couple stories? Um, just, to, you know, I think... The way things are looking with coronavirus, this is going to be coming out while people are still quarantined. So let's talk about some fun stuff for a bit here. Awesome. Yeah, um, I definitely have some weird stories that make for great, you know, cocktail story time hour. Um, a lot of these were from one of the facilities I work with called Zudio. And I was like I said, working like 60 hours a week, maybe even more traveling the U.S. with animals, showing up in New York to do Letterman and then headed out the next day to go to another media event. And traveling with exotics is just fun in itself. I mean, I would show up at the airport with usually a bald eagle, an alligator, and a lemur. And we always flew American and they were right. They were awesome. And they'd be like, who do you have today? Oh, you've got justice. Awesome. And they are great. They worked with us and they're so fantastic on making sure our animals were best cared for and letting us check on them when we needed to. But that led for some fun times. Um, Locked out of my hotel room is do you, probably one of my... So do you check... Th- yeah. I, I have to interrupt for a second. Do you check <laughs> an alligator? Do you sh- ship them cargo? Are they in your carry-on? How do you, How does one fly with an alligator? All of the above. Uh, no, a lot of times we would check them and they would put them underneath in cargo. Um, and this was when I was in California. So we would often have pit stops in... Uh, was it Houston and Texas? So we'd be able to run down and check on them. But yep, they were all crate trained. Um, so they'd be in their crates. And we also always made sure they were comfortable without that travel because it's pretty unique. And there were definitely some that weren't meant for that travel. Um, there were many times I was on a plane with a kangaroo. Sometimes people knew, sometimes people had no idea. So when we traveled with kangaroos, they would we had this little, like, they're usually the young ones, right? You can't travel with, like, a six-foot-tall kangaroo on a plane. That would be... People would notice. Yeah, people would notice. So it was usually our youngsters, and um, we would have a little pouch for them, and they would be hanging out in their pouch and usually sleeping, and then we'd just, like, hook the pouch around the seat in front of us and hang out but sometimes they would wake up or so often you'd see like a foot shoot out because they sleep upside down so head at the bottom of the pouch and feet at the top oh they're they're really cute um so yeah sometimes you just see like a foot pop out and somebody would be like wait a minute what's in there <laughs> what is that <laughs> yeah 
So we'd get a lot of attention. Sometimes we'd show up at the hotels and there'd be like a line of people waiting for us. It would be like, you know, we're exhausted, right? After a day of travel and here we are, like got to do an animal show, let the staff meet these guys um, because they're letting us stay at our hotel. And we'd exercise the porcupines and the kangaroos down the hallways. It was good times. Oh my goodness. Um, Yep. And the alligator would stay in the bathtub. So there would be no maid service during our stays. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but let's see the, the lemur story. That's a good one. I have a weird snake story too, and I'm not a huge fan of snakes. So that one's entertaining, but, uh, the lemur story, uh, we have red rough lemurs and they are one of my favorites to work with. They're just goofballs and just full of life and fantastic. But, uh, these two, I had two of them for that trip and I don't remember why I had both of them and I was letting them, we'd just gotten in. I was letting them run around, bounce around, burn off some energy in the hotel room. And I needed to grab some paperwork from my coworker who was literally three steps across the hall, like not far. And the boys were out and I went over there and I shut, um, closed my door, obviously, like all the way. And I knocked on her door, got my paperwork, went back over and I couldn't get in. They had somehow just perfectly must have jumped up on the door and swung like that extra security lock closed (laughs) like you know the little metal bars that extra security so the door can open like you know half an inch so I couldn't get in and here I am with the door open like cracked and the lemurs like sticking their hands through at me like what are you doing out there (laughs) so I had to call hotel security and they used their fancy little tool to open the door but it was uh it was pretty entertaining so that one's a good one Those lemurs, I swear, they always got into trouble. Um, Zuri, I also talked about justice, right? The blind eagle. One of my favorites, too, is I had the eagle in the crate. And we're just hanging out at night, and he's bouncing around. And he kept going up to the crate with the bird, right? And he kept lifting up the crate cover, and he would see the eagle, and he would jump and run away. Like, he was (laughs) terrified of this thing, which he should be. He would get eaten in Madagascar by a big bird like that. Yeah. And he probably did it like a dozen times. And I just laughed because on the other side, if you think about the eagle, Justice couldn't see the lemur at all, right? Because he's blind. So he was clueless yeah. to it all. So it was like a little game he played, I think. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's like a like peekaboo or something. Like. Peekaboo. It was totally peekaboo. Peekaboo. I'm going to scare myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's so funny. <sighs> So, yeah, and then dating. Um, one of the facilities I worked at, we one of the nonprofits, um, we'd raise, uh, get a lot of youngsters that were either abandoned from their moms, uh, mom didn't, couldn't take good care of them, or people would get them as pets, and then they would get, you know, in trouble and confiscated. So we would end up raising a lot of youngsters of different species, and often that meant they would come home with me, because why not, right? So mm-hmm. I definitely remember dating and um, having this little adorable albino kangaroo like hopping around my room. This guy was like, seriously, is this really happening? You know, just it was it was normal for me, right, to have all these right. kangaroos or a lynx or whatever it was in my in my house. But everybody else was like, uh, this is weird. <laughs> and mind you, my yeah. house was on the property that the, the facility was on. So it wasn't like I was taking them far. I, I lived there. So they would just like you know, come home with me from work. Just walk home right, with me. Right, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, that must be so fun. Um, it's making me wish that I had, yeah, done a little bit. I mean, there's still time. 
get We're into still exotics. Time. There's still time. There's still time. Uh, I'm not doing any job hunting anytime soon, though. I'm very happy here in Missoula. <laughs> it's a cool. It's a cool career. I definitely, you know, I've been away now for a year doing the dog training full time, and mm-hmm. I miss it. And my past coworkers are awesome and they'll still send me videos or like the other day I got a FaceTime with the kookaburra and she sang to me I love her so things like that um but I definitely in the near near future um plan on looking into some of the like bird especially I really like birds the raptor rescues out here and starting to do some Mm -hmm. volunteer work at some of the facilities out here so I can keep my toes wet in those exotics yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've been really enjoying. I've been volunteering at um, Wild Skies Raptor Rehab Center. Give them a shout out up here in Missoula. And it's just been nice. so fun to keep getting to work with, you know, a variety of animals. And then, I, you know, well, not with coronavirus right now, but I was volunteering at the shelter. And at least they're getting like cats and nice. the occasional ferret or rabbit or something. Just other things to work with besides all these ball crazy border collies in my life. <laughs> That's awesome. Give in mind the stink eye. <laughs> And that's kind of too with coronavirus happening right now. I definitely am excited about my business. I am just starting to take everything online. And Mm -hmm. that really opens up that I can do, you know, different, the unique animals that you have. If you've got a parrot at home, give me a buzz. We can do virtual training and I can walk you through that training Mm -hmm. via online and video chat and whatnot. So it's really, really nice. And and you're positively, positively pets, right? Yep, Positively Pets. It's P-A-W, like paw, Positively Pets. Great. And we'll add a link in in the show notes. Um, So do you have anything else to add before we head on out? I don't think so. I think, you know, you guys can find me at positivelypets.org or on Facebook and Instagram at Positively Pets Training. I'm always posting fun videos and throwback Thursdays of me with my exotics, whatnot, too. So check it out. Love to have you follow me. Awesome. Yeah. And um, I'm Kayla Fratt. I own Journey Dog Training. You guys can find me online at journeydogtraining.com. If you want to follow my foster dog, Madge, and her journey, we are doing YouTube videos um, at Journey Dog Training on YouTube. Hopefully it will start actually seeing progress with her eventually. (laughs) It's been slow going so far. Um, Yeah, we will. We will. We always will. Um, We'll always get, we get somewhere eventually. Just, you gotta think you're just, already ahead of where you were probably a few weeks ago oh my god well yeah and it's only been five days so we're you know we're still in just adjustment period um so before we go make sure that you guys subscribe to canine conversations wherever you find your podcasts you can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com and it's canine all spelled out not uh letter k number nine you can contact us at hello at canineconvos.com. We love hearing from you guys. That's actually how we ended up with Emily on the podcast. Um, so reach out. We get episode ideas, interview requests, all sorts of, all, all the time. Um, and if you guys want to be able to give us any help um, during this time, you guys can also write a review. You can visit our businesses, like us and follow us on social media. Um, all of that really, really helps other people find the podcast and helps us stay afloat. Um, and our theme music is called Funny Song. It's provided royalty-free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk. And our lo- logo is from Walker Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.